Please be seated. It's good to be here again, pinch hitting, second week in a row. Glad you're all back. Um, if you have your Bibles, open them to the prophet Joel. We'll be looking at Joel ta- chapter 2 and looking at the theme of repentance. We'll focus on verses 12 and 13, but we're going we're gonna to look at a lot of the context both before and after to shed some light on how we repent. Uh, Joel is ministering to the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. If you remember, the tribes of Israel had split. He's ministering to the southern kingdom in a time when they are in sin. Uh, we don't know the exact date, but that description I just gave, a time when Judah was in sin, covers a huge chunk of the history of Judah. Uh, we don't know when it was, but we know that there is a locust plague that either has come or is coming, and scholars are sort of split down the middle as Joel describes these uh, beastly locusts, which are like sort of grasshopper, the Mark McGuire of grasshoppers. You know, they're grasshoppers on steroids. And um, they, I'm a Cardinals fan, so I can say that. Um, they're coming, and, and the scholars are sort of split on whether or not these are literal super grasshoppers or are, are they an army coming to, to wipe the people out? It's a, it's a threat of judgment coming. So that's where we're going to pick up. I'm going to read a couple of verses just to give you a feel for that from chapter 1. You don't have to look at it. It's chapter 1, verse 4, introducing the locusts. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. So it's all these different Hebrew words that are different types of locusts. And he's listing different breeds and types of locusts that are coming wave after wave to wipe out everything. All the green that you would see out the windows turned brown in the mouths of these little creatures. Now chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been seen before, nor will it be again after them. Through the years of all generations, fire devours before them, and behind them burns a flame. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. With the rumbling of chariots they leap on tops of mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them the peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march, each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. And the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? If you lived in the tribe of Judah right now, you would be afraid. You would be scared. Not hypothetically scared, not dark castle at Bush Gardens scared. You'd be afraid for your life. 
Intimidating words. And now, the pivotal point in the book of, of Joel, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. We'll stop there and pray, and then we'll try to scratch the surface here. Lord God, we thank you that you are awesome and great and that your day is coming. We ask that you would prepare us for it. We ask that you would work in our hearts, that we would see uh, your grace in the midst of your justice. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So as I said before, the theme is repentance. Uh, you know the story of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, when the Reformation began and he went to the, the cathedral at Wittenberg and tacked on the Wittenberg door the 95 Theses, which sparked a social, religious, cultural transformation in Europe that we're still feeling the ripples of today. And the number one thing on his list of the 95 Theses was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. His first objection to indulgences was this. When the Lord Jesus said repent, he meant for your entire life to be a lifestyle of repentance. And what is repentance? Well, the Westminster Confession defines it like this. Repentance is a saving grace whereby a sinner, a person who sins, out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, a true sense of your sin and the apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin, hating your sin, mourning your sin, turn from it unto God. Turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience, with the full purpose of new obedience. So we know that repentance is a turning, turning from sin, a change of heart, a turn from one direction to the other, and that our entire life is supposed to be this life of continual turning, turning away from self, turning away from sin. So we all know this, typically, if we've been a Christian for more than a couple of years, we've heard something like that before, right? Um, but let me ask you this. We all know that we're supposed to be turning from sin and that that's supposed to describe our entire life. But I just want to ask you this, especially if you're a believer. What was the last thing you repented of? Or, put it another way, what are you repenting of now? What is it? You don't have to answer out loud. We all know that we need to repent. And we all would say we want to repent. But the question is how? How do we repent? And I think this passage gives us three things. Um, first, because of God's righteousness. Secondly, because of God's reputation. And third, because of his reward. But first, let's look at God's righteousness. Now, when I say we repent because of God's righteousness, I mean that in sort of two senses. First, the first sense I mean it in is locusts. The Bible uses the word righteousness in a narrow sense often, talking about God's justice, his holiness. He is righteous and he cannot endure sin. He is perfect and holy, and he will not let sin go by with nothing done about it. And that's what Joel is telling the tribe of Judah. He's saying, look at the locusts that have come and get ready for the ones that are coming, that will cover the sky, will blacken out the sun. The Lord is righteous, 
It's a call to repentance for those of us that are presumptuous, who either believe that we have nothing to repent of or we just don't want to. Now, the tribe of Judah, if you had asked any, any one of them, any, any, any member of that nation, do you know God? They would say, of course, yes, I do. Do you follow Yahweh? Yes, I do. But Joel is tapping them on the shoulder and said, see that cloud coming? It's not a thunderstorm. It's the day of the Lord. Are you sure? Don't be presumptuous. But maybe you're not presumptuous. Maybe you're reluctant. Maybe you're afraid. Afraid of repentance. And so, in our key verse here, verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. We don't repent just because of the locusts, the righteousness of his locusts. We repent because of the righteousness of his love, his character. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. There's a lot there, but I just want to hit on that love. If you forgive me, I went to, I went to seminary, so I have to say things like this so that you'll believe that I actually went. The, word, the, the Hebrew word there is, is hesed, uh, which, which our translators have put steadfast love. Some, some translations say covenant love. Others will just say love. Uh, but it's a, it's a term that's often used to describe God's love for his people, and it is a faithful, steadfast, persevering, relentless love. It's beyond what we would typically say, well, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, and, and that's, of course, it's there, but there's something richer and fuller here. The steadfast love of the Lord is waiting. We repent because the Lord is righteous, both because he is just, but also because he is loving. And nowhere else does that strange fusion come together than in the God of the Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ. Both God's justice, who will not let sin go unpunished, and his relentless love for his people, and they join together at the cross of Jesus. And that's why that we repent. That's how we repent. If you are reluctant, look at the cross. If you're presumptuous, look at the cross. An early church father in the third century named Origen talked about confession of sin to God. He talked about confession as, forgive me, this is a little graphic, but as the vomit of the soul, where your heart lets it out before God. When you confess your sin, he calls it the vomit of the soul. Recently, I was listening to a sermon. Uh, my sister uh, used to live in San Francisco, and I was listening to a sermon by her pastor. His name's Fred. And Fred has an eight-year-old son, and he said that recently they were on a flight. And you may have children, or if you, growing up in elementary school, you remember your friend who was the faker, who was always sick and pretended, you know, he feigned illness, but really he wasn't. Well, Fred's son is the complete opposite of this. And you know children like this as well. If they say something's wrong, you know they're really sick. And that's his eight-year-old son. And they were on the flight, and he looked up at his dad, and he said, I don't feel good. And Fred said, okay, you know, all systems go. He pulled out the bag, which thankfully the airlines provide for us. And he said he thought he was going to be able to hold off, but then right as they landed, right as the wheels touched ground, it was too much for his son to handle, and, and there it was. 
But Fred was ready. He had the bag. He said I was, it was the, the, the greatest moment of a parent. You know, he knew that he had finally arrived. He was a true, skilled father. Um, he was the best of the best, and he could now teach lessons on parenting. And he was there, and he had it ready, and he said it was, it was amazing. It just was a perfect setup. His son, you know, did the deed, uh, sat up. Fred wiped his face with a napkin, tied up the bag. No one even seemed to notice. Put it away. Everything was fine. And he, said, he said, I'll never forget it. His son had his head between his knees, and he leaned back, and he looked up, and he said, thanks for catching my throw-up, Dad. <laughs> Origen said, the confession is the vomit of the soul. Are you reluctant to confess your sin? Because you know that that's the worst part, isn't it? That waiting. But if you know that you had a loving father who was there, who was ready to catch it, who could handle it, who knew what was coming and was ready to take you, we'd be faster repenters. We'd repent quickly if we knew he was there that our daddy was ready to catch it. Look at the cross. But moving on, we repent because God is righteous. We also repent because of God's reputation. Verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room, and let the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should, the people, why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? We repent because the reputation of God is at stake. And we learn a few things about repentance here. First, we see that it is corporate. Notice uh, Joel rattles off, uh, consecrate the con congregation, call an assembly, gather the people, gather children, even nursing infants. He even says, if you just got married, skip the honeymoon. This is more important. This is urgent. Do it now, and it's all sorts of people. Blow a trumpet. So we see that it's a corporate issue, not just an individual issue, that it's something that he's calling God's people together to do, but also that there's a sense of urgency. Blow a trumpet. Skip the honeymoon. Bring your baby. Weep. Blow the trumpet. I want to ask a question. Uh, corporate Christians, the, the, the people of God in general in, in the public sphere, when do we most often blow the trumpet? Why do we blow the trumpet? What do we consider urgent and pressing? What do we think damages the reputation of God most? Um, very, very often it is the case that we rightfully rally around good causes moral causes, issues. We're very good at flocking to those things and campaigning in one way or another for them. And of course, that's often right and good and, and something that we should do. But in this text, why are we called to blow the trumpet? We're called to blow the trumpet, trumpet here. Not to change everything out there, but to call for our own repentance. These are God's people, the tribe of Judah. And Joel says, blow the trumpet, call an assembly, be urgent, be together for our repentance. 
Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Here's the implication. When we are unrepentant as God's people, hardened, callous, slow to repent, God's reputation among the watching world is damaged. Very often, I think quite the opposite. I think I need to be the most righteous person in the neighborhood because everyone in my neighborhood knows I'm a reverend. So if I leave my trash can out for two extra days because I forgot and my wife is no longer going to enable me by coming and getting it back in because that's my job, I worry about it. I think, oh no, they're going to know that I'm not perfect. I can't let them know that I struggle. I can't let them know that I'm flawed. I can't let them know I'm a sinner. I need to be the most righteous man in the neighborhood and then God's reputation will be good because people will say, well, Ben's so great. His God must be too. But in this passage... The reputation of God that's at stake is based upon whether or not his people will repent. And of course that has a turning unto a life of obedience as we said before. But it's a change of heart. He says, rend your hearts, not your garments. Not just the outside signs. And so all these issues and causes that the corporate people of God love to rally around, many, many times those are good and right and true and things we should care about. But the prophet here says, rend your hearts and not your garments. That the manner in which we communicate the message is just as important as the message itself. That we would have hearts that are humble as much as they are bold. Uh, Dwight Moody, the famous evangelist, uh, you probably have heard of him, um, and he was very well known. He was, a, he was a, a preacher. He would travel around, and hundreds and hundreds of people were con- converted through his ministry, and he was a beast of a man. He was a huge hulking man with a big beard and a booming voice. He would preach to crowds of hundreds with no amplification. This was before those times. And people would gather around just to hear him. And someone once asked his son, uh, how did you become a Christian? When did you first believe the gospel? And he said, well, it wasn't um, at any of my dad's crusades or in his preaching ministry at all, actually. Uh, One night when he was a child... Dwight Moody disciplined uh, his son unfairly. He scolded him. He spoke harshly to him when company was over at their house. And he embarrassed him. He humiliated him. And he sent him to bed early. And his son was in bed, and he said he remembered laying in bed. And a few few minutes later, uh, he saw that hulking image, the shadow of his father in the doorway. And he said, I pretended like I was asleep so that I wouldn't have to talk to him because I'm afraid he was going to discipline me again. And Dwight Moody's hulking voice softened. He said, son. But he still faked that he was asleep. And Dwight Moody came and he knelt down by his son's bed. And his son said, I heard my father weep over speaking harshly to me. He said, that was the first night I believed the gospel. We repent because the reputation of God is at stake. What if we flipped the paradigm? What if I changed my attitude towards my neighbors instead of having to be the most righteous if I wanted them to see I'm a sinner who needs grace? God's reputation is at stake. We repent for him. But finally, we repent not just because of his righteousness or his reputation, but we repent because of his reward. Uh, verse 18, we're gonna, the people do repent. They call out, uh, just as it said here. And in verse 18, we're going to read a large section here. 
Then the Lord became jealous for his land, and he had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a a reproach among the nations. So the reputation is restored. I will remove the northerner from you, and the northerner is an enemy, either the locust or, or, or an army. I will remove the northerner from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, his rear guard into the western sea, and the stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. We'll, start that. we'll stop there. We repent because of God's reward. He says, I will restore to you this judgment that has come on the land because of their sin. Everything that's been taken away, God says, you've repented. I'm going to restore it. The desert is now green. Death is now life. And the hinge of the, of the verse, the hinge, or the hinge of the chapter, the hinge of Joel, is that call. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Turn to the Lord, even now. Turn to me with all your hearts. God responds to his people's repentance with restoration. The kingdom comes. Things are set right as God's people repent. And you know the power of repentance in your own life, don't you? Now, I'm not talking about a health and wealth gospel that you're going to get a raise if you'll repent or that dry spot in your front lawn because it hasn't been raining enough this summer is going to go away if you repent this afternoon. That's not what the, that's not what the prophet's saying. He's, he's given this imagery of creation restored, of things being set right on earth the way they were supposed to be from the beginning, God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. That comes through the repentance of God's people. His restoration. And you know the power of this in your life. You know what it's like, perhaps like Dwight Moody's son, when someone comes to you and they confess their sin and they repent to you and they apologize and the power that that has to soften your heart. Or maybe you know the opposite. You know what it's like when someone is hard and will not forgive and you've always been punished and you needed a father who would kneel down by your bed and weep, but it never happened. You know the power of repentance, the restoration that comes the inching forward of the kingdom of Christ as his people's hearts turn back to him. But it gets even better. Not only does the kingdom creep forward and move ahead, not only does he restore, but verse 26, he continues, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame And then here it is, the rest of the reward. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord, your God, 
and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. The greatest part of his reward is not just the restoration, but the Redeemer himself. He says, I will dwell among you. You will know that I'm with my people and that I'm your God and that there's no one else. The presence of God among his people is the greatest blessing when we repent. And of course, that's seen most fully. We won't read it, but in the, in the following passage, it's fulfilled in Pentecost when the Lord sends his spirit. He says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And that happens in the book of Acts. And we enjoy that now. We enjoy the presence of his spirit, both individually and as the church. We enjoy his spirit among us. And that's known most fully when our hearts are soft, when they've turned and when they're broken and they're repentant. We repent because of his righteousness. We repent because of his reputation. We repent because of his reward. I was speaking to a friend of mine recently. He's a pastor now in Alabama. And uh, once upon a time, he was a youth pastor, also in Alabama. And when he was about 25 or 26 years old, there was a family in the church who owned a farm. And I'm pretty sure people do this here, but in Alabama where I grew up, um, we would go mudding. I will pronounce it with a G from now on, mudding. And... Um, but you know what this is, where you take a four-wheeler or a Jeep uh, out into a muddy field and, and just plow it up for fun. And uh, this family, this is sort of a wealthy family in his church, and they, they, they had a Jeep Scout, sort of an older and more rare Jeep, kind of hard to find, hard to find parts for. And they said, you know, Tim, take the Jeep, take the Scout, have a blast on our farm, it's your day off, knock yourself out. So he said, okay. So he took the Jeep, and he was pounding it. He was taking it on jumps. He was going in through deep spots where he thought he might get stuck, and then finally he did get stuck. So he called a friend, and they, they brought their truck and pulled his Jeep back out, got it unstuck. He was afraid it was broken. They got it running again. So he kept going. And he, he kept pounding it and pounding it and pounding it until finally he took it on a jump, landed in the mud, and the, the machine just died. They tried to pull it out. They couldn't. They tried to get it started. They couldn't. It wasn't out of gas. Everything, you know, it was... It was toast. He had destroyed this machine. And so he then, uh, covered in mud, had to go. I don't know if he cleaned up before he went to the man's office or not, but he knew reluctantly that he had to go to his friend, this older man, and, and tell him what he had done to his Jeep. And Tim said he walked in. He, he was trying to think of ways out of it, but there was just no escaping it. it there was no way out. The, the Jeep was in the mud, and it wasn't going anywhere, so he had to tell him. And he said he walked into his friend's office, and he told him, he said... You know, I've, I've hammered your Jeep. You know, it's destroyed. And, and the thing that was killing him, he says, you know, it's not like I was a teenager. You know, I was, an, I was an, a full-fledged adult, 26 years old, <laughs> on staff of the church. This wasn't some sort of teenage indiscretion. I knew what I had done was wrong while I was doing it. Uh, and I did it anyway. It was just humiliating. And I was so afraid of what this man was going to say to me. He said he, he told him, I, I broke your Jeep. He said the man just started laughing. He just laughed. He said, Jim, or Tim, it's okay. Uh, don't worry about it. And then Tim's trying to apologize more. He's like, look, I, I'll pay for it. I, I can fix it. And he said, Jim, I, I, or Tim, I, I go to your church. I know how much you make. You cannot pay for it. It's okay. Uh, he just laughed. Oh, what a relief. And, and, and Tim just thought, wow, what a picture of the gospel. And then he said, it was the funniest coincidence, and yet I know there's no coincidence with God. He said, the man continued to laugh, and he said, Tim, I've got something to show you. And they had gone hunting several times together. And he opened up the closet in his office, and he pulls out a rifle that he had, a brand new, I think it was a Remington, I'm not sure, 
a brand new rifle that he had purchased for Tim as a gift. Not only did he wipe it away, not only did he say, your sins are forgiven, but he said, look at, look at what I've got. I've got a present for you on top of it. That's what our God is like. And that's why we repent. We come to him because we know he's open, he is forgiving, he loves us, and he's proven it to us in Jesus. And not only does he give us forgiveness, not only does he give us restoration, not only does he give us that relationship, but he hands us the kingdom. He says it's yours. Repent. God is good, and he loves you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as I preach this, I have a hard time believing it. Uh, Lord, would you smile on us now as we worship you, as we sing of your love, and Lord, teach us to be fast repenters for your name's sake and for our joy. We pray this in your name. Amen.